Hello, everyone, and welcome to our second Albanese government year episode of Old Everald and Young James Talk Politics. There are power failures up in Queensland, so uh, Everald's phoning in today rather than zooming in. How are you, Ev? I'm fine, thanks, mate. It's probably some sort of devious socialist plot that, uh, you know, the electricity's gone out here, but that's another uh, matter that we can talk about. But it's good to talk to you, and it's been a very uh, interesting uh, interesting week in politics. It seems as if uh, Albo's got a chance of getting his 76 seats, so he has an actual majority in the parliament that's not what we technically call a hung parliament, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, we, we haven't had a majority government in this country since Kevin Rudd, given the Liberals never governing majority because they always need the help of the Nationals. But it looks like between McNamara in Melbourne, um, potentially Gilmore in New South Wales or Brisbane up in Queensland, uh, Albanese might get to that magic 76. Yeah, well, look, he should get to 76 the way it is now. I don't think that matters whether he gets 75 or 76 because the fact is that every bit of legislation he passes has to get through the Senate. And if the Greens don't actually get the balance of power in their own right in the Senate, I think David Pocock, who looks as if he's going to get to be the senator, one of the senators from uh, the ACT, uh, it, it will, uh, uh, you know, he's a very strong... Uh, a climate change man, and he will vote with the Greens on at least on climate change matters, and and so I, I think it means that Albo's got to start negotiating with the Greens and the Teals to get things through, no matter what happens. So he might as well do the negotiating in the House of Reps rather than wait till it gets to the Senate, mightn't he? I mean, to to my mind, it would be wise to. Uh give the Teals and the Greens stuff to work with anyway. Like, not just because um, he'll need to out of necessity, but also because the Teals and the Greens reflect the democratic mandate of the country. They reflect the choices of the country and the words of the country. Um, and, you know, the, the people voted the Teals and the Greens in for a reason to say that. Yeah, well, that would be, not that'd be smart. That would be smart uh, for him to do because all you need... The, the extra vote for the 76 is that they can't ever deny your supply. If somebody says, well, we, we're upset with you, they can't do that. They can't actually get a no-confidence motion through. So that's all that the 76 means. The rest of it, all the legislation has to be uh, negotiated. Now, my feeling is that Albo has uh, uh, started uh, his uh, first week as Prime Minister uh, uh, in a safe and sound manner. He uh, he did well, I thought, uh, uh, from what the media tell us. He did well in the meeting with the Quad group over in in uh, Tokyo, and, and they've moved in various ways to uh, start the government rolling. We won't have a ministry until next week, till the caucus selects who's in the ministry, and then Albanese allocates his portfolio, so we've really got a a temporary uh, a government until then, but it looks as if he, he's given the impression that he's taken control and he's not doing anything uh, wild and uh, and revolutionary uh, the way Gough Whitlam did in in 1970s when he won. He came in and in the first couple of days he did about 20 
dramatic things with him and Lance Barnard as the sole cabinet members, and that scared the hell out of the Australian population, and he never quite recovered from that, even though I approved of all the things he did. He scared the daylights out of the public. So Albo has not moved to frighten anyone. He's looked as if he's a safe pair of hands, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, and I mean, um, I, I think he's he's probably wise to do that. I mean, we, we've just had, um, you know, we, we laughed at Scott Morrison calling himself a bulldozer, but we have had three three years of a government that was full of bulldozers knocking down everything in their path. Um, and, you know, I think Albo would be wise to at least consolidate, formulate a plan. But conversely in saying that, when the ministry is sworn in, when Parliament does start to sit, He's got to get the ball rolling on federal ICAC and a federal ICAC with teeth. He's got to get the ball rolling on climate action and climate action with teeth. So, you know, I'm willing to say here and now, in the week after the election, especially given he had to jet off to Japan to do the quad thing and all that, okay, give it, give him some time to settle in. But when the ball starts rolling, you know, the action must come. Well, well, there are interesting days ahead and, and it is interesting, you know, the... Statistics is uh, uh, the, the ALP got the lowest percentage of the popular voters had since 1910. But as you pointed out to me the other day, uh, uh, there was a lot of tactical voting by ALP people to make sure that Teal's removed some of the Liberals. And so mm. that vote's not quite an accurate vote. But uh, nevertheless, uh, the, the Liberals lost uh, 70%. Uh, uh, it was their worst result, rather, in terms of seats in 70 years, and they appear to be coming apart in all sorts of ways. And now there looks like there'll be a bloodletting in the National Party, even though the Nationals didn't lose a seat. They did have their majorities reduced in a number of places. But uh, Barnaby was accused of creating, and I think this is accurate, of whenever he appeared he created a negative image in the capital cities of a party that was just simply going to block everything from now to evermore. And he probably helped the Liberals to lose. So I think there'll be a move on Barnaby this week. Darren Chester from Victoria, who's, the, in my view, the best MP the Nationals have got, he, he's thrown out a leadership challenge to Barnaby. But Little Proud, David Little Proud from Queensland, will enter the fray, and it could be that because he's a Queenslander and most of the Nationals are Queenslanders, the majority are, uh, that Little Proud might get there. But anyway, I, I'm prepared to predict now that Barnaby will cease to be uh, uh, the, the, the leader of the Nationals. Uh, it's been an interesting week in that regard, hasn't it? Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd be happy to see the back of Barnaby as the leader of the Nationals. I mean, um, you, you say that he went to the capital cities and probably in doing so promoted an image of the Nationals of a party, you know, that would block all climate action, block all progressive legislation and block all fair and equitable legislation and so on. Um, and that's not just because of sort of media hype or anything. It's because he was going around explicitly saying those things. Um, you know, he, he was going around that now they're now they're threatening to get rid of net zero as a party commitment. Like it's um they the the Barnaby Joyce era, like the, the Barnaby Joyce, if we get the Barnaby Joyce Peter Dutton era of the Liberal National Coalition, um, I know it's, you know, people have been saying for years conservative parties will die out as their voter base does. 
But if we get the Dutton Joycier of the coalition, I wouldn't be surprised if um, more and more seats were to turn teal um, or red in the near future. <laughs> well, yes, and look, I think what will happen now too, I don't believe the Nationals and the Liberals will go into a coalition in opposition because even if you, uh, you know, including the Nationals and the Liberal seats together, they're still going to be 20 short of getting anywhere. So there's really no need for them to be a coalition. And if the Nationals had any sense and wanted to prove that they're a separate party, they're the party of the Bush and what have you, this is their big opportunity to say, right, we won't go into a coalition. And I'd be very surprised if they go into a a, a, a coalition. They may do that just before the next election in the hope of winning, but I don't think they've got much hope of restoring the balance uh, particularly with Peter Dutton as the leader of the opposition, uh, for the next election. I think as long as Albanese and Jim Chalmers uh, run a, uh, a good economic uh, ship, I, I think uh, uh, ALP will be in for at least uh, two terms, won't they? I hope so. I really do. But I hope it's on the back of making this country a markedly better place. Um, you know, we just saw nine years, three terms of government, and you could argue that, aside from being kicked and dragged into a same-sex marriage plebiscite, that nine years of government left the country with nothing to make it a better place. That's the other reason, though, I think Albo would be wise to work with the Teals and work with the Greens. Obviously, A, because it's just the right thing to do to engage elected parliamentarians who the public have put up to maximise the democratic participation and whatnot. But also, if we're thinking tactically, I mean, if there are 10 teals running around, the Liberals can't form government. Like, it's, 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 it's not, not possible, you know. If, if there are 10 teals running around who, who've taken away all these blue-ribbon Liberal seats, the task for the coalition to form government is a very, very uphill battle. Um, and if they were to somehow strike a deal with the teals to form government, as in the coalition, it would be, a, at least on climate and social issues, a much more um, progressive government than a pure coalition government would be. So it's it's in the oh, Labor Party's best interest for the Teals to stay strong. Uh, true, and I think more independents and more Greens will actually be uh, elected at the next election. If they cooperate with Albo to show good government, I think they can advance their uh, their, their numbers uh, their numbers further. And I think, uh, uh, you know, we'll see a... Uh, uh, independents take seats uh, from the National Party, for argument's sake, because people, the, the, the one thing that will protect our, our Albanese is this, that if people get upset with him, I don't believe they'll vote at the next election for Peter Dutton. If they're upset with Albo, they'll elect a lot more Greens and a lot more Teals, won't they? So the, the, the anti-Albo vote won't, in my view, go go back to, uh, to Dutton. Uh You'd have to hope so, though. Um, we, we have seen in the media already, um, you know, people in the media trying to soften Peter Dutton up. We saw Stuart Robert, the former, um, one of the former front benches in the Liberal government, go on. Uh, I, I like saying that, former front bencher of the Liberal government. Jeez, that sounds good. Um, yeah, yeah, so he, um, he, he went on TV. He said, word for word, you, you can't judge people on their actions if it's what they believe in. So we can't judge Peter Dutton for walking out on the apology to the stolen generation or claiming victims of rape in detention centres were faking it. 
because he believes it and we can't judge him. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Well, look, I think I think the uh, liberals have lost the plot as to what they believe. I mean, when when I was a boy and, and Bob Menzies, I was 12 years old when Menzies formed the Liberal Party and he had been previously kicked out of government by his own party. They were called the United Australia Party. They were the Conservative Party. And he wanted to separate himself from the Conservatives and form a new party. And he quite clearly said, I'm a Liberal Party. I'm in the centre. Now, that didn't mean he anyway moved to the left. He just said the middle ground of Australian politics is where we ought to be. And we're calling ourselves the Liberals because we're not Conservative. And and they've totally departed from the Menzies era. Now, whatever you believe about Phil Menzies may or may not have done for Australia, the fact was he didn't altogether be the Prime Minister for 19 years, and I don't know that anybody's ever going to beat beat that. He did in two terms, but the fact of the matter was he established himself in the centre ground. He was helped by the split in the Labor Party, mind you, but the fact is that the stability that he created, it may not have been imaginative, but he had stability. They have totally lost any semblance of stability, the Liberals and the Nats now, have they? I mean, yeah, and I, I don't think Peter Dutton will help in that regard. You know, um, like the former Queensland police officer in the 1980s, not to say anything, um, you know, like not to impugn the credibility of every police officer in the country, but the you don't get more corrupt Queensland police in the 1980s. Um, he's he's not he's he's someone who knocks skulls together, uh, literally and figuratively. He's not a leader. Um, he's not soft touch. He's not diplomatic. He's not mature. Um, and he's he would instantly turn us like we we were a global embarrassment under Morrison. I hope and think we won't be a global embarrassment under Albanese. But we go straight back into the bottom of the barrel. Um, if if we were to have yep. a Peter Dutton-led government. It's, it's just not even something you want to think about. Like, yeah, and I think we'll find in the next couple of weeks uh, that some members of the Liberal Party and the National Party on the moderate uh, parts, numbers of each party, will decide that there's no future with the Liberals and the Nats and will sit as independents in the House like Tony Windsor did and like Bob Catter does now, they won't join the teals, but I think we'll find some moderates depart the party uh, and, uh, and and become, uh, you know, independents. For instance, I'm certain that Darren Chester in Gippsland, who's got a huge personal vote there, he gets 70% of the first preferences uh, of the first primary vote. He could hold that as an independent for years, the way Tony Windsor did in New England. And so I think we'll find a fragmenting away simply because they can't accept Dutton's uh, leadership, and I think uh, you, you know that's where that uh, that's where that is heading in uh, you know, particular ways. So we've got to put it down as a as an as an election that uh, has broken not broken is not the right word, but has removed the absolute power of political parties to control the agenda in Parliament, yeah. and moved us to a situation where the power of major parties will only exist if they live in harmony with the Greens and the Independents. I think there's been a, a shift uh, in the way in which Australia has voted and the way in which the Parliament will work, James. Yeah, I mean, look, we've, we've followed each other on 
Twitter for what two years or something now, and I remember you've been saying for you know a year and a half that this election would spell the end of political parties as we know it. Comment after comment from people was saying, "No, that's stupid. That can never happen. No, it won't happen." Um, and you've you've uh, you've really been proven right. I mean, I I don't think um well I think a lot of people, a lot of very smart people, are saying we might move to that sort of mainland europe style coalition politics where you know your left party your your left government quote unquote is like sort of a coalition made up of 75% labor 25% greens and conversely your quote unquote right wing government um will be a coalition formed up of like 75% liberal nationals and you know what happens in the continental Europe country is like the white supremacist parties, like their One Nation and United Australia Party equivalents, wind up with a few votes and join their coalitions too. So um, hopefully we don't see that here. Obviously those you know right right wing white supremacist parties getting votes and getting seats in our parliament to join the coalition style government, but it, it does look like we're moving towards smaller influence of the major parties across the board. Well, well, I hope so, and I hope that the influence of the major parties, uh, you know, will decline. Not for the out of any sense of viciousness, saying they must decline, but the more that they decline, the more democratic Australia will become. And because politicians then have to negotiate legislation through Parliament, and that takes a little bit extra time, and that won't really worry me. Uh, it means that the people of Australia can enter into the political debate because things aren't being slammed through Parliament. And in my lifetime, I've seen bills uh, slammed through parliaments by dominating governments, and they said, there, we got that through. But they lost the voters at that point because the voters said, well, we weren't consulted and we don't like that. And because they slammed it through, that's not democracy. And so I think it gives you and me more of a chance to influence MPs if there's a lot of negotiation going on about legislation, we can legitimately be part of that negotiation, can't we? Well, I think you're completely right. And I mean, for the Teal movement and the Greens to survive in the, like, consolidate how they, the, their winnings from this election, they will have to do that, right? Like, the whole thing the Teals pushed was people of Wentworth, people of McKellar, people of Kuyong, people of Goldstein, people of North Sydney. Your representatives claim to represent you, and then they just vote with George Christensen every week. Now, the whole ethos of that is we are community independents who will represent you all in our community. So they are, if they want to hold on to the seat, they will have to, um, you know, represent the community and negotiate and get their community involved in decisions. Otherwise, those people will probably just go back to voting for the Liberals. It's the same with the Greens in the seats like Griffith that the Greens picked up from Labor. If the Greens, um, and I'm, I'm, again, I'm sure the Greens and the Teals will because they're not idiots, they're very smart people. Um, the, the whole thing with the Greens, you know, they, their pitch to the voters of Griffith was the Labor Party isn't representing you well enough anymore, their climate action isn't strong enough, etc. Come to us. Um, and so the people of Griffith, having elected a Greens representative over a Labor representative, will now be expecting their representative to be up there in Parliament advocating for better climate action because that's what the community wants. So I think you're yeah, right. Yeah. We'll see, yeah, like communities being better represented in Parliament. Yeah, and, and, and you see, the Greens have got 
It's a different complexion. That seat that the Greens won at Griffin, that was Kevin Rudd's seat. That was a seat. It's very interesting. The two prime ministerial seats fell. I mean, Josh Frydenberg was defeated in Robert Menzies' uh, uh, you know, old seat here in Griffith. Uh, 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 it was lost. Kevin Rudd's prime ministerial seat uh, was lost. Terry Butler lost. And so... That just shows the shift in politics. And over on the other side of town in Ryan, where uh, uh, Lady Bonham Watson-Brown uh, won in what was used to be Blue Ribbon Country, I remember as a boy, you know, that, that seat would never go to preferences. The Liberals would win it by a mile of the leafy western uh, suburbs. Now, she's a university person, uh, uh, adjunct professor. She's an architect uh, and well connected into the community, and and not the sort of person people used to associate the Greens with. They used to think the Greens were very radical. Well, she's not radical at all. She is a very sensible person, and and she ran a highly personalised campaign. I've got one friend over there who said that she knocked on their door three times during six months before the election, and so she got down to grassroots politics. This is all different stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it's, I mean, and I, I hope we see more of that because for, for too long we have had MPs who don't, like, they they represent their community in the sense that they are the member for wherever, but they don't get in touch with their community. Like, I know where I used to live in the Blue Mountains, Susan Templeman was an excellent community representative. Um, she would always be agitating for Blue Mountains and Hawkesbury interests especially because the Blue Mountains and the Hawkesbury were so beset by natural disasters, fires and floods and the like. Susan is always the first one on the ground helping out, um, you know, be it in a soup kitchen or a rebuild or anything like that. And I, in part, that's because um, Susan herself were, lost her house in the 2013 bushfires in the Blue Mountains in Winmalee, where I used to live. So I think um, someone like Susan Templeman in Macquarie and someone like uh, Elizabeth Watson-Brown and Ryan and hopefully these teal and green independents too, they show what happens when you are a member of the community who goes to represent the community. Now, you look the other way and you see the repudiation of Christina Keneally, and we won't go into detail about it because we talked about it each last show, but voters are smart. Like Voters aren't idiots. They know when someone doesn't represent their community and... We we saw this. Yeah, election. well, he, yeah, big repudiation. Exactly right, James. And that was one of the good things on election night: the defeat of Keneally. Forgetting whether she's a good person or not, she was parachuted into a seat and wiped out the political career of a candidate who'd worked for that electorate for a long time. A, a, a good Vietnamese person, lawyer, fireman. She gets wiped out because. They parachute Keneally in. I think that was a big lesson for Albo. Don't ever parachute people into a, a seat again. But let's let's be, be, before we run out of time, let's look at the good and the bad uh, guys of the week. Uh, uh, James, I give good guy of the week to uh, Jim Chalmers, uh, uh, who uh, is acting uh, minister for immigration, uh, uh, exercise power under an act of parliament, nothing illegal about it. The power a minister has uh, uh, to, to intervene in the relation of people coming into the country. And he sent that Sri Lankan family who've been 
in jail basically for four years. He sent them back to Bill Wheeler where they belonged and where the government sent in some absolute thugs to haul them out in the middle of the night, uh, you know, four years ago. And I praised for, two, for three ways. Uh, Jim Chalmers for having the, uh, the courage to do that. They promised they would do it, and he did it in the first week, which shows they're carrying it all out. You know, for the family themselves who showed they wanted to stay in Australia, they they wanted to be genuine Australians, whatever their past might have been, and also to the people of Billawila, which is a good country town. I've been there many times, and this this community again, the community, the community rose up, whether you were left or right or centre there, and said this is wrong that this migrant family and and the bush needs migrant families to come there and help build up their population. That town showed how democracy works. I was, I thought that was the good thing of the week, Jim. Yeah, and um, you know that it's it's a heartwarming story, um, and I hope they're able to secure permanent residency or they're given permanent residency rather, um, because they sure as heck deserve it. The one thing I'll note about that story is where I turn on, um, you know, depressing young lefty mode um, is like we. But but for the fact that a bunch of white people in the bush got angry about how that family was treated, no one would have heard about them. And their experience of being dragged out into the detention camps in the middle of the night by the border force thugs, there is the experience of so many people who try to come to this country. So I hope what has happened to this Bilawila family now, we don't just say as a society, all right, they're back in Bilawila, everything's fine now, our detention and immigration system is fine. Uh, we don't have to think about it anymore. I hope this becomes no, a real turning point in the way we treat refugees, and I hope the country as a whole realises we have been um, for 20 years plus in breach of pretty much every international human rights law there is with the way we treat refugees. And I hope from now on um, people realise at least how disgustingly inhumane our immigration system is in this country and push for change. Yeah, true. This is a first step in what's going to be a yeah. long process. Well, who's your good people of the week, good guys? Um, so, look, my, my good people of the week are the Chinese-Australian community. Um, I am very happy the Chinese-Australian community finally, after um, three years of being relentlessly attacked by a racist government looking to throw them under the bus to score political points, um, was finally able to get their one up over the government. Uh, someone did a booth-by-booth booth voting analysis of some seats in Sydney and Melbourne with the highest proportion of Chinese-Australian residents, including Benelong, Ree, um, um, Banks, um, those sorts of inner-city seats, um, Parramatta as well. And they found that in, like, in the booths with higher Chinese-Australian populations, the swing against the coalition was almost double the swings in the rest of the booth. Um, so it's it's great to see, yeah. to my mind, after, again, three years of just vicious assaults on Chinese-Australian people and the downstream racism that follows, um, that this community has really risen up and, you know, stuck the middle finger up at the government and said, no, 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 no more of this. And I think it's now incumbent on the Albanese government um, to really put, stopping racism, stopping the politics of racism at the front of the agenda because that they have been, you know, entrusted now by culturally, culturally and linguistically diverse communities 
with reversing three years of absolutely hateful, divisive government. And there's a real opportunity for the Albanese government now um, to reward and do the right thing by these diverse voters who have had to put up with so much that they should never have to put up with over the past three years, over the past nine well, years. Well, yeah, well said, James. I think a lot of Australians, uh, because they were conditioned by the absolute racism that we've had for nine years about this uh, this matter under several uh, you know, conservative prime ministers, uh, we forget that Chinese came out here in droves in the gold rush of the 1860s and then stayed on. So a lot of these, whereas a lot of right-wing voters thought these are communist Chinese who've descended on Australia here and infiltrated, they're not. They're about the fifth generation, a lot of them, of people who came here for the gold rush in 1860. And you try and tell them they're not Aussies when they've been here since 1860. I mean, it is a, a, a crazy thing. But let, let's look at... Uh, you know, the bad guys of the week. And the bad guy of the week has is, is got to be uh, Morrison, not because he lost, but because he, on election day, he tried to scare the Australians about a, a, a boat from Sri Lanka appearing hundreds of miles off uh, Christmas Island and instructs the border police to put out a news release to all Australians that this is happening. And then his whole team everywhere said, look, unless you, you re-elect us, there's going to be boats like this coming in. First of all, it's a breach. Under uh, the conventions of calling an election, the Prime Minister is not supposed to exercise any power except that which is absolutely necessary for some crisis that occurs. You're in caretaker mode. So uh, by, by doing that, I believe he breached uh, uh, the, the Electoral Act or, uh, and the Constitution, and I think he should be hauled up before the bar of the Parliament as an MP and disciplined by the Parliament and suspended for a sitting uh, because he, in, in my view, uh, was in breach of the Constitution of Australia. How do you feel? Yeah, uh, it's. I mean, this is a government that all through their time has been, you know, breaching traditions and norms and the like. I mean, I think I've talked about before how in terms of appointments to a tribunal, um, previous governments appointed like sort of 5% political hacks, 95% qualified people. This government appointed 35% political hacks, only 65% qualified people. This is a government that's been bulldozing all over parliamentary norms and traditions um, and all those sorts of um, unofficial written rules and official written rules that keep the parliament functioning. I remember seeing Rex Patrick on Twitter saying like this government's been the worst ever in responding to freedom of information requests. And it's it's all part of that same big ball of secrecy, corruption, and abuse of process um, that this government yeah. has been renowned for. So I, I think you're entirely Look, right. It's just sort of like the final. Yeah, well, who, now, who, yeah. now, who's your bad guy of the week? Um, look, it's um, it, it would be remiss if we went through this show without talking about the horrible events that happened in Texas this week. Um, and my bad person of the week um, obviously, the, the kid who shot up that school in Uvalde is a horrible, horrible thing. But the um, every single US legislator, congressperson, senator, etc., who takes money from the NRA, who refuses to look towards um, any uh, gun control measures, any measures to stop the over-militarisation of that country, 
Um, and indeed, so many congressmen and senators in the US look to loosen gun restrictions, look to make guns more prevalent. There are only there are over 400 million guns in that country. And the reason uh, it is so is because of the Republican Party and some Democrats too, essentially being sponsored by the NRA, National Rifle Association. Every politician who takes the NRA money, every politician who refuses to legislate for gun control is complicit in all of these mass shootings. Um, and every time one of these tragedies happens, all these pro-gun politicians come out and say, oh, our thoughts and prayers are with the families. What a tragedy. Well, if it's a tragedy, do something. And they're not going to do something because it's not a tragedy to these people. What they care about more is um, ensuring their flow of donations remains steady and that they get the votes of the gun nuts. So, yeah. Uh, true. The National Rifle Association has been a, a bad organisation for a long time, enormously powerful. Uh, and But, it, you know, I, I believe it's close to being uh, uh, close to being evil and... and, and uh, and who wants to live in a society where you feel you have to carry a gun for your own security or because you want to impose yourself uh, on the community? I mean, I, I've never, ever thought of having a gun in my house. If some bloke comes through the window of my house with a gun, I'm going to presume that he's a better at shooting that gun than I am. So why the hell would I want to get into a fight with him? He might just quietly uh, surrender. But I just find the whole cycle of the American name, they've got to be careful. I have a son in New York and an American family of whom I'm very proud, and they are as concerned about this as I am. But the fact is that you have in America people who oppose abortion with enormous passion, saying we must preserve life, and they go to the extremes to, 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 to oppose abortion and go to the Supreme Court because life's precious. Now, the same mob, then having done gone to the rally about abortion and Randy's and go down the road and buy a gun and so they can shoot people. So they're preserving life at one end and shooting them at the other. And I'm blown if I can work out the even the mildest rationale of that, James. And it, it doesn't make sense at all. And I mean, I, I saw um, some statistics the other day, well, yesterday, actually. 89% um, of the country supports stricter gun controls. And over half the country supports mandatory gun buybacks of assault weapons like we had here. So by and yeah. large, it's not the voting public's fault. It's um, as it always is with America. It's the, the system of politics that puts their Senate beholden to the whims of these conservative interest groups who fund, you know, all the senators in states like Wyoming and Alabama and Arkansas and Texas and Oklahoma and Kentucky and the deep south states which get a massively disproportionate representation in their parliament, holding the entire country hostage, holding the lives of people hostage. And it's just, um, it's, uh, there's, there's no yep. words for it. It's uh, really no words for yeah, it. Yeah, well, uh, uh, the, the United States has got a lot of problems to fix, and so have we out here in Australia. But I actually think at the end of this week, I think we can see, uh, I mean, the air just, uh, when the Morrison government fell so down, without being rude or crude, look, the air just, Next morning, when I woke up Sunday morning and said uh, that government's gone and, and we've actually got independence in power and the Greens are coming good and whatever, I actually went outside and the air actually smelled fresher, James. Somehow or other, the country seemed to have cleaned up a bit overnight. Now, 
uh, it could be that after three years of the Albo government, uh, we might get disenchanted, but I, I don't think so. I think that uh, they now can see, the ones I've spoken to since the election, can now see the way the political winds are blowing. And I haven't found an ALP bloke yet who's walking around saying, look, we won, we're in power, we're going to do things. They all acknowledge uh, that they're in a different political system and they better get smart and wake up to it. So I'm hoping that we'll have a, a good three years where the air continues to smell fresh, James. Uh, I hope you're right, I really do. <laughs> right. Well, it's real, real good to, to talk to you. I think we probably run out of our time this morning and, and I've got to go and fix up the power failure here and my computer won't even... Uh, uh, won't even work, but we've got to see and see what it's all happening. Anyway, that just shows you we've got to do something about energy in Australia and, and sort it all out. But, James, look forward to thanks for the chat today and look forward to talking next week too. Yeah, thanks, Sav. If you get on the line to Jim Chalmers and tell him and his commie mates to flip the power back on. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I will. I'll, I'll turn him week. up. <laughs> so, yeah. Bye for now, James. Thanks, Brett. Thanks, everyone.